0: Has being a mama changed you? I know it surely shifted my DNA. It isn't just the body changes, the baby brain, that overwhelming sense of responsibility, or even the hormone cocktail. It's so much more than all that. The big question starts to linger inside all of us, especially as our kids gain some of their own independence and then they start going to school. That inner question, not even the busyness can cloud it out. What's my purpose now? Who am I that's not my kids? Who you used to be may be a vanishing memory. Who you now want to be can often be a foggy mist that you can't quite clarify. Surely who I am now is more than a preparer of snacks and a mom taxi. If you're ready to get in the game of your own life again, then I am ready for you. I've taken my neuroscience degree, mixed it with a dose of professional sport, marinated it in NLP certifications and lots of business and personal coaching to design The Awakened Mama, a six-week program to help mamas get back into the game. Imagine moving your really good idea into a living, breathing reality. Reconnect with your purpose. I know it can be hard to do it all on your own. Work with me and together we'll get momentum into your ideas to awaken your dormant dreams. Go to In The Game Coaching to find out more. That's I-N-T-H-E-G-A-M-E-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G dot com to find out more. And P.S. If you know a mama who could really use this lift, why not awaken the good Samaritan within you and pass on this nugget of goodwill? She will surely love you for it. Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In the game podcast where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality every week we aim to touch move and inspire you to new possibilities for your life my name is sarah maxwell and is it really time for me to now intro my own show heck no bring in the aussie talent to get it done With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat
1: and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into
0: reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member
1: of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility.
0: Today, we continue the conversation with a retired Army major turned leadership strategist and keynote speaker. Matina Joel joined the Army at only age 17, where she earned nine military service and war medals before medically retiring in the crossfire of the Lebanon War, where she was actually stationed nearby on a peacekeeping mission for the UN. Figure that one out. Her stories will astound you, but mostly because she actually lived to tell the tales. From fast roping out of helicopters to making deals with warlords in the Solomon Islands to breaking her back in five places and still continuing to lead a convoy to safety. And then somehow flying home on a stretcher with her eyes only inches from the overhead lockers on a plane for 26 hours. Yeah, get that through your mind. This woman continues to thrive and serve through all of that. And after her enforced retirement from military service, she began to piece together the aspects of her journey that could help others. Finding herself on the Prime Ministerial Advisory Council, as well as facilitating cross, not crossfit teams, corporate teams. Maybe she does crossfit, I don't know. Facilitating corporate teams to build their resilience. As the best-selling author of Caught in the Crossfire, she is a sought-after keynote speaker. Named as Telstra Business Award finalist, a CPA Top 10 Australian smart thinker, and on the AFR 100 Women of Influence for 2018, you can see that she creates waves wherever she roams. So are you ready to fast rope into this, Mataina? Are you
1: ready? (laughs) I'm ready, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast today. It's really great to be here. You're welcome. This will be
0: easy compared to what you've been through.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully no one's going to shoot at me today. So that's always a good positive sign, you know, it's a good start to the day. <laughs> Gosh, exactly. Things that,
0: well, that's a good way to start. So you join at age 17. Clearly you've never been shot at before. So yeah. before that moment, what in your upbringing led you to choose that, the army?
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, it it's, an unusual career choice. I grew up in the hinterland of Byron Bay, and so yeah, you know, there weren't other kids from my school, you know, reaching out to join the army. It was sort of um, something I kind of accidentally fell into. Even that, um, I had had the great honour of representing Australia in sport. I'd actually toured uh, to China when I was sixteen playing volleyball, and that was my my very first overseas trip. And obviously, you have a and I have, both have a love of volleyball. Are uh, you on the beach circuit and me indoor? Um, and I think that trip to China when I was only 16 years of age really opened my eyes to the rest of the world and how uh, how privileged we are in this country and how much I'd taken for granted my upbringing, particularly uh, in this beautiful part of Australia in the Byron Bay region. And so I kind of, you know, I came back from that trip. I did have professional um, sporting scholarships in the US, um, but I was just also exploring what other options that my my life journey could go on. And so I kind of reverse engineered the career that I wanted to to look for. That probably tells you a little bit about how my brain operates at, at 16. Oh, you use the word reverse engineered. I'm like, I just love you already <laughs> for that word.
0: You know, this is a bit for the volleyballers out there, but, you know, clearly getting spiked at is nothing compared to choosing the army. But, you know, with my partner Nat and I, we were just talking the other night about how she also was offered a US scholarship and didn't take it. And we were just noticing how critical that was for the path that she did take. Whereas she had some friends who said, yeah, so I'm just curious, yeah. having not gone to the US and having chose the army, how do you feel about that? Knowing that there was all these choice moments then?
1: That's right. It's really sliding door moment, you know, both for Nat and I in our lives. Um, and I guess for me, I had sort of created this list of things that I wanted in a career. I wanted to go overseas uh, to travel. I, you know that experience of going to China had really um, instigated that I wanted that experience of the cultural aspects of all these different countries I'd never um, sort of encountered before. So, um, but particularly the humanitarian aid aspects. You know, seeing people in poverty for the first time, like really intense poverty. Um, I wanted to work in teams. I, I loved team sports, but I also loved to be a leader of those team sports. I like to be captain of the sporting team. Um, and I also wanted to continue my, my academics, I wanted to go to university, but I'd seen my parents really struggle financially, put my older brother through a long uni degree, uh, architecture, and so I wanted some form of scholarship, so I, that was kind of all things that I went looking for, uh-huh. and the Australian Defence Force Academy at Canberra kind of ticked all of those boxes, that I would be finan- financially independent at 17, I was actually still 17 in the first year of uni, so my parents actually had to sign a waiver as my guardians to allow me to join the army and start my my military training and my my university studies and embark on this career uh, that I spent 15 years but you know as you say that that sort of pivotal moment at at 17 to make this decision to go and serve my country I mean I really loved that honor of representing Australia in in, in sporting capacities and then uh, in, in the military of being of service to people but particularly wanting to help people that were vulnerable um, yeah. in in different parts of the world and be able to assist them in that sort of, you know, in their, in their crisis and their hour of need to be able to come as that, that force to come and offer them hope uh, of a more peaceful future. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I made that decision. And, you know, despite everything that's happened to me, I don't regret that decision. I think um, sometimes life you end up where you're meant to be down the track and it takes that hindsight and, you know, lived experience to look back and say, that was just a moment that was to lead to get me to where I am now. Yeah, beautiful.
0: So I want to step back a couple of paces because I've always been really curious. We've just sort of discussed that 17-year-old, you know, that mind or even 16, where we start to see laneways for the things, like even that thought of helping people. You just see how that lane has persisted in your life. But if step back into the child mind, the one who didn't think about lanes and you know, job titles, um, and was it actually probably logical? Do you do you remember any early dreams that you had for your life? I'm just curious if we can relate them back to any current things.
1: Yeah, look, I think you know, I was I was a very determined kid, um, very disciplined, I guess. You know, and and for you having that professional sporting background as well, you'd understand and probably relate to that. Um, you know, my life was about sport when I was a kid. Um, I loved all sorts of sports. Um, I was very lucky to. To play 10 sports at state level and uh, have a dabble at all sorts of different uh, activities and was very driven and so you know my parents never pushed me to to succeed at sport it was me that was setting the alarm at four o'clock to go and do hill strength sprint training or whatever type really? of set for myself um and i was very fortunate i i actually had four years at under-17s um for new south wales so i was actually 12 when i first started playing in the state side um in under-17s for indoor so um, I always had this connection to older people and you know was very young, sort of coming through those uh, through those years and, and spent the last two years uh, of under seventeens um volleyball captaining that team. Um, oh. and so you know, I kind of I guess you know, as a lane way, I just found myself naturally falling into leadership positions, having that internal drive and not only resilience, but also that determination to set myself a goal at a very young age, which I just thought was normal. But I, now it's kind of in hindsight like looking back, going, yeah, I'm looking at my own children now as I, like, you know, that experience of becoming a mum and watching your own children develop. Um, that, you know, I had that um, natural instinct and skill where I would be kind of goal setting and then setting up the milestones of the things that I needed to do to achieve whatever goal it was that I'd set. And i would become very determined to achieve and not just in sport, but for other aspects of my life. So um, you know, I think that kind of led for me to then sort of naturally, almost accidentally fall into the military, which is sort of a very disciplined type yeah. environment, uh, a leadership, but also you know, as a woman in that male dominated environment, needing that strength and capability physically to be able to uh, perform uh, alongside the men in a, you know, what is a very arduous environment most of my career. So you mentioned like that leadership
0: quality in you, like captaining teams. What was that first moment that you reckon in the army where there was a moment and you rose up into it and your leadership potential started to be seen by, you know, the the people in power?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. I think, um, I guess my entire career, I felt like I was thrown in the deep end that and that probably sort of fits with my personality that I, I was willing to say, yes, you know, I'd, I'd have a crack at things. And I think for listeners, my advice is anything in life kind of, you know, we often, particularly as adults, we sort of put these limitations on ourselves and what we think we're capable of being able to achieve. And sometimes we have that pressure of failure that drives us rather than just giving ourselves permission to have a crack at something right. new and, and learn from those experiences. So, um I think the fact that I was willing to just have a go, I loved kind of breaking into new elements of the boys' club. I was, you know, very fortunately the first woman to be a Navy diver, um, mm. to get to fast rope out of helicopters with the SEALs after September 11th, in North Arabian Gulf. I'd sort of done all of these things that, um, I guess, in the eyes of my superiors, that, you know, had more faith in my skill set than probably what I even I did at that point in time. But because I had this ability to say, yes, I'll at least have a go at these things, I was then given more and more opportunities. So I was very fortunate throughout my career to do a number of firsts for women um, across yeah. the defense force and I think kind of pivotal to that not only my own um you know mindset to at least just have a go um and say yes rather than saying no I was kind of kind of happy to put myself out there and um and that's something we need to kind of override that natural instinct to step back rather than forward yeah. um but I was very much supported as well and I guess the the point that you know, I had incredible male leaders around me that sort of encouraged and and presented those opportunities things that I didn't think that I was capable of so Having people like General Peter Cosgrove was commandant of Duntroon and I was a cadet, uh, an officer cadet at Duntroon uh, and a mentor for me throughout my career, giving me those opportunities. He was the one that signed off the waiver to allow me to fast rope out of helicopters with the seals, boarding smuggler ships in the Arabian Gulf. And that's a, a position that's normally only ever done by um, our special forces in the Australian army. So something I really never expected to do in my career as a, as a female logistics officer, but you know, having those opportunities to, to do that, having that support. And I guess to kind of answer that question you asked, when was the very first time that I think that I was sort of had that moment of my goodness, I'm being thrown into these situations was I was 23. Um, I'd just been promoted to Sydney to actually post on board uh, a Navy ship. So even though I was Army, I'd specialised in amphibious warfare and water transport. And so uh, I suppose it was the the first crew on board HMAS Canimbla. So we'd just bought... Uh, amphibious, two amphibious platforms, two ships from the Americans that we'd really modified um, and we hadn't done amphibious warfare in the Australian Defence Force since World War II so it's kind of a capability that we'd lost. Yeah right. So posting in um, I was being post, um, promoted from lieutenant to captain but only two weeks into that job my boss who was an army major actually got sick and he left the ship and he never returned and so I was promoted twice in only two weeks, so from lieutenant to now acting major to command the Army Department on campus for wow. the next two years. And, like, that was just an extraordinary position that, again, kind of uh, it's good in hindsight to look back at that um, and think that was crazy what they were expecting from a 23-year-old because I never backfilled the other position either. So I was doing both the captain and the major's job, so two people's jobs at 23 but a fantastic experience for a young leader that there was a blank canvas, you know, I had to, alongside the um, the Navy operations officer, we had to, to come up with the plans of how we do amphibious warfare in the Australian Defence Force. So it was basically a great experience of being able to bring forward all of those um, specialised skill sets uh, of the team around me, of the soldiers that had these special capabilities and kind of orchestrating and bringing that together of how we're going to actually operate um, to do amphibious warfare. And then also when we were then suddenly posted uh, to the North Arabian Gulf after the September 11th bombings of the World Trade Centers in New York, we then were working with American Navy SEALs. So we're suddenly having to do these operations under black ops. So, so no lights, no radios to communicate between the, the personnel, the watercraft, the helicopters. And it, it became my job to to coordinate the, the amphibious offload at times up to a 1000 soldiers from multiple Navy ships simultaneously. And I had uh, six helicopters and 10 watercraft at my disposal. So um, so if you look at that sort of 23, um, having to get my head around how I was going to make all of this happen um, and great leadership lessons of learning yeah. um, how to empower through, through delegation, how to delegate effectively, how to get people focused on a mission, on a clear objective that we're all got to work towards together and bringing different, even different nationalities of defense personnel together to, to do that. So um at the time, you know, I didn't have have the luxury of time to kind of sit back and absorb the enormity of what I was being asked to do. It was sort of just you just had to get on with it. You know, you, you don't have a choice to say, I'm really not, you know, trained, <laughs> I haven't done the course <laughs> yet. <laughs> uh, what you're asking. I did the 101. I didn't quite um, get to this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, having yeah. to do the best job I possibly could, and knowing that you've, you've literally got people's lives in your hands, you have to do a great job, you have to succeed. There isn't an option to fail at this, and you, you need to kind of work with the people around you to make a plan and make it succeed. And so, I think that's probably the real key turning point of my military career. It was like, wow, that was a huge situation where I was suddenly having to lead in a kind of a sudden leadership capacity. Uh, and learn a lot of skill sets really quickly to to make sure that we did that effectively. Just hearing that story,
0: I I just had this aha moment about the value of sudden leadership, because you know how you said you're willing to just give things a go? Yeah. And I see that in this exact story that you're forced into delegation, like you said, but even I know that you were really collaborative, like you really had to ask, let's say, someone in engineering what they knew. And we talk a lot these days in leadership um, around collaborating, but to me, sudden leadership, if if you hadn't have done that, you never would have survived it. It's almost like instead of it being this lovely idea, because you read it in the leadership handbook, I think there's some value in throwing people in the deep end because you have to do it. You cannot survive if you do not delegate.
1: Yeah, I think so. And with the corporates that I work with, I kind of say, you know, the military, we have a very young workforce. So um, people are often surprised that at 23, I was given all of these millions of dollars worth of assets and and hundreds of people's lives. Um, And they sort of think, you know, in the corporate world, we wouldn't give that level of responsibility to someone that young. And I said, you know, we have a young workforce. So, you know, in the Australian Defence Force, we put extraordinary responsibility on very young shoulders. And our defence personnel, are such, you know, so proud on operations around the world in very complex, rapidly changing environments. And we have very high expectations as a community that they will serve us and serve our nation um, extremely well in, in these very high-pressure situations. And so I kind of try and get the corporates I get to work with saying, hey, take a little bit of that and, and use it in your own work environment. And I think most of the time when people are thrown in the deep end and have no option but to have a go at things, then they often surprise themselves and also, their, their command, their, their leaders of what they can actually achieve. And unless we give them that opportunity, then you're never going to know what they're actually capable of. So, um, yeah, the Defense Force is very good at uh, throwing people in the deep end and, and having high expectations of what we do and giving us that opportunity to do more than we, we can.
0: can't. We all take, like, I even think as a parent, listen for what Mateen is sharing as a parent. You know, I, I just thought of my daughter just then, you know, when could I give her more opportunities to figure it out? Mm-hmm. And, and really that resourcefulness, of course, within safety. But interestingly, your examples are so good because these are life and death situations. So with, when a company's like, oh, that's too much of an asset, you're kind of like, well, life or asset, you know, like yeah. I really see that we could do it a lot more and that your example... Um, is really good it's a demonstration of the qualities that come up when we have so i have a question about giving things a go though are you good at how do, are you good at failure because i feel like that has to go part and parcel with yeah. But, yeah, how well, do you deal with failure
1: most people i don't like failure yeah. <laughs> but i've got to say too though sarah that every single one of my failures across my life, like I remember those incidents vividly and and I remember the lessons from them. And I think those lessons drive me far more than success does, that um, I think we gain more from those experiences. So if we can give ourselves permission to fail and as leaders, if we can create environments where our people can fail safely, uh, where it doesn't have such a detrimental effect, it's not lives being lost, the risk level isn't huge, but create an environment where It's okay to fail Um, but you need to have a go you need to have a go and you need to learn from that experience so you then don't repeat those mistakes so um, again i think part of the military training is when we train out field we try and simulate the battlefield environment as as close as possible to the real thing to put people under that level of pressure so that they can fail and learn in a you know a safe environment where people don't lose their lives so that when it gets to you know the real warfare situation that that's not the first time they've experienced that level um, of pressure yeah. and and that the risks are, are much higher in those environments but you know they've got some experience and they've already they've already failed uh, in training rather than fail on the on the battlefield so I think for all of us if so we can try and yeah. you know as leaders when we do create these opportunities and be looking for opportunities for our people and, and even as, as you mentioned as parents create opportunities for our yeah. children um, give them the resources give Them the parameters of you know how to operate in safely, but give them the opportunity to fail so that they can you know learn from that and grow. Because I think you know, and I, I'm guilty as well as a parent, you know, hamstringing my children of wanting to protect them, keep them alive yeah. <laughs> at least till they're 10. You know, kind of put yeah. that, that benchmark. <laughs> oh, how old are your kids? Because I didn't say that in the intro and I should have. How old uh, the two little girls? are six and nine. Sierra's just okay,
0: ten. perfect. So we, we're in a similar zone, I've got a five and a half year old.
1: Yeah, but I'm having
0: all these aha moments. This does not happen every time. So thank you for that Um, around failure, because I really related to how you talked about you as a child and how you would just you were really sporty and you wanted to succeed. I actually think when you give things a go, like I just thought of myself, I actually don't think of it like, oh, I'm good because I can fail. Cause all I give things a go. No, I actually don't think of failure, to be honest. I just, I think I see it more like I'm going to get better. I'm going to get like, I'm driving towards something and I don't, so I'm, I guess what I'm trying to ask, I'm not even finishing a sentence, but I'm asking whether deep down, is it actually just like not a failure? It's sort of just like a step no, along. A the I
1: think it's a learning, you know, and I think, you know, The failure is actually gives us the best opportunity to learn from those moments. So, um, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I don't see it as failure. I just see it as an an opportunity to learn and to grow rapidly because you kind of really, you know, it kind of digs in deep when you don't get the success you hope for. Um, I think, you know, I imagine you're a bit the same, Sarah. I was always, I was never competitive with other people. I just had this competition with myself about actually how far could I go? What could I achieve? What, um, you know, I was never sort of competing with others around me. It was just my own internal race of um, how far could you take how it? Far? And, you know, that it was an unknown, undefined finish line. And I'm still like that now. Like I, you know, I look at life and go, who knows what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next year, what opportunities might present. And I think if nothing else from from my injury, and having lost my career that I worked so hard for, and I love the military. I miss, I miss the military every day. I miss that camaraderie that, the teammates. Um, and I imagine you're probably from, you know, sport with that team environment that is such a, it's such a gift to be with other people and have that energy around you. Um, so I missed that career, but I learned so much from that. You know, I'd gone from very, I'm mean, going to have a master's in project management, a very disciplined, structured kind of life that really nothing happened in my life unless I'd planned it. You know, I had these five, 10, 20 year goals. I had all this structure of where I was heading that in many ways I was kind of potentially blinkered from different opportunities I never even saw because I was so focused on where I was heading. And so driven, whereas from being injured and having kind of lost everything in a split second, uh, having lost my physical capability, I was in a spinal brace for over a year. Um, I lost my military career. I I lost my own identity as to who I was because I really saw my physical capabilities as a big part of who Martina Jewel was and having to redefine um, my own relationship with myself as who was I if we took all those labels that we we all like to put on ourselves of, you know, I was I was a navy diver, I was an amphibious warfare commander, I was I was a, a major in the army, uh, I had all of these kind of labels that were just suddenly removed in one split second. Wow. Um, but if, if nothing else, and I had to learn to actually accept help, I'd gone from being really fiercely independent, that I, I was capable of doing everything myself, to suddenly having to rely on people, particularly initially when I was in a wheelchair, having people bath me, dress me. It was like a this really rude, abrupt uh, awakening of having... I had no choice but to accept that level of support, and my independence was ripped away from me. Um, but I've learned so much from that experience that now I'm far more open. You know, I think, as you know, the Matina Jewel before being injured was very focused and blinkered and very controlling of where I was heading. Nothing really happened <laughs> by spontaneity in my life because it was sort of where I was going. I controlled it. Whereas now I'm just, you know, really uh, almost the opposite end of the pendulum where it's like, yeah, I'm still driven. I've still got the projects I'm working to, but I'm far more open to any opportunity that might present, and I, you know, I'm even more willing to say yes to to crazy experiences of, you know, ambassador roles and different things. You know, sure. yeah, I, you know, I've got a very diverse um, life that I really enjoy now that I don't think I would ever have had had I still been in the military and very right. focused and structured.
0: And I want to point out for people because they they don't know I've um, done your leadership and resilience online program and. I know that that was an outcome of COVID, you know, and we talk about adjusting and like being able to adapt to things. And I think that was just such a demonstration of your capacity. So people should really check it out. It's, it's like the best online program. It really is. And like, people will know that I don't say that about other programs because my team and I who did it, we were like, is this just so well done? We were just really blown away. We loved working as a group. So thank you for that. Um, I really recommend people like we're going to put that in the show notes so they'll be able to access it. But bring
1: a slide up. So that's kind of what's covered in the leadership one and the resilience back. So there's there's so much guys look at
0: all the yeah, it's like I did a lot of it online. Whereas my another team member did she wanted to write stuff down. Like I typed my stuff Um, and it was just yeah, from the videos to the I love the exercises. I'm a learning junkie a little bit. So I did love um playing full out with it and like trying everything on my life and um I just wanted to thank you for that and I um I wasn't going to talk about that because I have a million (laughs) other things that I want to talk about but
1: but I do want to ask you the the point you're making there is about adapt whatever happens and so you know COVID comes along I can't be in person with people let's find another way another platform of being able to share that knowledge and um and I love that you're saying you really enjoyed the activities because A lot of it was just kind of taking those underlying principles of uh, leadership and resilience from the battlefield and bringing it into business, regardless of what people do, and giving them the opportunities to to embed and learn those frameworks, those tools, and you know, and hopefully take it into their own lives of um, being able to take those lessons. Uh, yes. And it, and even I've been quite surprised with how much application there is. You know, most people wouldn't think, oh, you know, a war zone is going to be really. Um, relevant to their own work environment. But there's just so many of those underlying principles that are, that help people.
0: But you know what I got from, because your situation is so far from most of our reality, I felt an openness and non-defensiveness to the learning, which yeah. I know that sounds crazy, but I think we all have a listening, different listenings. Like it could be something like, oh, I already know that, or, oh, been there, done that, seen it all before. You know, there's like this kind of judgment Filter that we work with. But because your stuff is so out there, you know, like the warlord story or the hell, you know, everything's just so foreign that I could, the the takeaways were extracted out and then I could compare. Like fast roaming is not like motherhood, but is it? You know, like you you (laughs) can actually do that. Or is it like that, the camaraderie? Is it like my team, you know, and my business team, uh, you know? So, anyway, all that to say, weirdly i think it it's got this um it's so far that it it actually creates land it lands
1: yeah so cool that's awesome
0: okay wait i have a this is kind of a weird question so this is an after the fact question about as your your career progressed and then you landed a peacekeeping mission in lebanon do you and you can say this like more after the fact was there ever a gut feeling that something big was going to happen there
1: Yeah, it's a a really interesting question that you asked, Sarah. I think um, it's funny because this this mission was my fifth overseas mission. It was actually a reward posting. It was a selection representation role to to represent Australia with the United Nations alongside 23 different nations. So I didn't get to work with other Australians. I was the only woman in my teams both in Syria and Lebanon. Um, I was over there for 13 months. Um, it's extraordinary experiences in this, you know, uh, this mission that is set up as this is this is your reward for having done such a great job on all these other missions that we right. almost killed you on. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a different <laughs> system to rewards in the corporate space. <laughs> but, uh, okay. um, uh, and so, yeah, it was sort of this great opportunity to go and have a, a different experience of, of representing Australia, actually working with United Nations, um, being a peacekeeper. So, you know, also you're unarmed in these environments. So it was never... It was never really sold to you that it was going to be, you know, a life-threatening situation, that it was going to be more dangerous than anything you'd experienced. And, you know, I spent seven months in Syria that was relatively uneventful compared to Lebanon. Um, And and in Lebanon, I was sent out to a very dangerous region that was kind of at the junction of the three countries, and it's where the Hezbollah had their military headquarters, and so you're surrounded by Hezbollah. And I think, you know, day one of landing in Lebanon, um, the Hezbollah are accusing me of being an Israeli spy because they've never seen women umce right. out there. So, you know, being uh having an AK-47 wow. leveled at me by a young Hezbollah soldier who was terrified that I was a spy and that you know, um, and although I speak Arabic, you know, trying to get him to just sort of calm down and you know, he was literally shaking with his weapon, it was like, please don't accidentally shoot me. <laughs> um, this is gonna be a bad day oh, in the wow. office. Um, this is extraordinary. So it was very quickly yeah. understand that. Lebanon was a very different situation to what I'd experienced in Syria and working on the Golan Heights. Um, But I certainly didn't, not until the war erupted and it was very, like a split second we went from monitoring a peace agreement to suddenly being under attack from everything the Israeli Defence Force had. So in that first hour of the war erupting, you know, at our patrol base at Kiyam, we had fighter jets bombing Hezbollah bases around us. We'd had so many near misses just in that first hour. Um, I was on the rooftop, It survived an extraordinary close near miss from a thousand pound aerial bomb from a fighter jet that blew up a Hezbollah base that was only 75 metres from us. And we were kind of exposed. We had shrapnel landing around us. It really was a miracle that we didn't take casualties in that first hour of that war. Um, somehow none of us got injured as huge chunks of concrete and twisted steel star pickets through the middle of these big chunks of concrete and then fine metal shrapnel all landing around us. And Not one of us had a scratch on us, which was uh, remarkable given the UN classified near miss from those weapon systems, a thousand pound aerial bomb from a fighter jet. A near miss is one kilometer away. So it blowing up just 75 meters from us. um, Sheer miracle that no one was killed at Kiam in that first hour. So it was a sudden from monitoring a peace agreement, a few dangerous things happening, to then a very swift you know, dramatic jump to we are in a life-threatening situation, we are under attack and every single minute there was bombs exploding around us and we were reporting thousands and thousands of violations of the peace agreements. And so I think it was that moment on Kiarm that this has suddenly become very different from what the UN was structured um, to survive. We weren't supposed to be in the middle of a war zone, we were supposed to be there as peacekeepers monitoring a peace agreement and now there was no peace to keep, we're actually just we were literally monitoring a war. So it was probably in those first few hours of that war that was that realization of we very we very well could die. We could you could lose your life in service of peace in this yeah, environment. It. Um and that sudden realization too that even the United Nations couldn't protect me, the Australian Defense Force certainly couldn't protect me this environment that was going to be up to us to mm-hmm. to try and make the right decisions to keep ourselves alive and and tragically, you know, for my teammates who were killed at the base just after I'd left the base to command a convoy through the war zone, um, you know, it was it was one of those moments that it didn't matter what your skill level was. There were so many times where I'd had artillery shells land literally sort of just, just in front of me, sort of 15 metres in front of me. Um, it wasn't that I was so skilled that I managed to survive. It was just sheer luck on the day that, uh, um, yeah, that... I managed to make it out injured, lost my career, but, you know, tragically, my teammates all lost their lives. Got it. And, got it. And
0: I, I can't help but think about PTSD when I hear this story in particular and and we hear a lot about that. And what is, how do you relate to that post-traumatic stress? Mm-hmm. Um, and, d- like, I know you had other depression, you know, in terms of losing your bodily, you know, your function and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts around PTSD and do you experience anything today that's um, kind of just shows you that wow I'm still impacted by that?
1: Yeah look I think um, you yeah, know mental health is such a big issue and and particularly for our veterans you know we're, we're sadly yeah. uh, losing more veterans back here in Australia than we have on our operations in recent times overseas so you know our veteran suicide rate is you know about three times that of the general population so we we have a really significant problem with our people coming home and being so adversely affected by what they've seen. And, unfortunately, once you've seen and experienced those things on the battlefield, you can't suddenly unsee them. You can't just, you know, forget what happened. I mean, you might try and mask them with different, you know, um, things with alcohol or uh, or drugs or those types of things to try and numb that pain that you've experienced. But I think for me it's those experiences will shape you and they they make you who you are today and for me it's that driving force of I can never undo or unsee what I have experienced uh, in that Lebanon war throughout my military career but those experiences I would like to actually help drive me into being a better human um, and being able to give back from those experiences and hopefully be a bit more compassionate a bit more caring and understanding for people regardless of their situations Um, the PTSD side of it I think you know for uh, when I first came back those initial um, months and years, um, you know, really struggled with survival guilt in particular. That right. you know, yep. I had survived it. Um, my colleagues that were left at the base had all been killed, and and given that they they all had children, I was single. I didn't have any dependents. I felt that very, very strong sense of survival guilt that was really unfair. That um, there were kids, you know, missing their dad, and I and I really wished I could have replaced. One of them i kind of got into this state where i resented that i was alive um, and that was a yeah. very tough place to sit in every day of that was that feeling of being of guilt about being alive um, and yeah. resenting the fact that i was still here and having to work through those very strong emotions to come out the other side into a more positive space of not questioning that you know it wasn't my decision to leave the base it wasn't my decision for my teammates to remain um, having to find some level of acceptance of everything and accepting that I'm still here and I shouldn't waste that opportunity. I think my teammates would be so upset with me if I continued to remain in a really negative, um, dark space um, rather than do something positive with the fact that I'm here. Um, yeah. I think also my children was a real turning point for me. Um, I was told that I wouldn't be able to have children because of my injuries. Uh, did IVF unsuccessfully for many years and then, you know, I'd given up. Um, Sierra was this little natural miracle that came along, defied the odds. I uh, was told it was less than one in ten thousand chance of having a baby naturally. So she is, uh, she is a force to be reckoned with. That child.
0: She wanted to come. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so I think also becoming a mother was a, another really uh, helpful point to me to kind of find that acceptance of. Um, Maybe this is why I'm still here. Um, who knows what my children might do, but I've got this. I've got this chance at life, and and I have a choice through the remainder of this very dark, negative space, or try and use some of those lessons for and help others through different, um, you know, similar sort of dark places, uh, and do something positive with my life, and sort of share some of those um, learnings and hopefully be you know inspiring for other people to also be able to come through that position and have perspective around around life. And I think, you know, as Australians, we're all so very fortunate, regardless of what where we are in life. I think as, as Aussies, you know, the fact that we get to choose the lens we wanna see the world through each day, uh, we have that choice. A lot of people in the countries that I've worked in don't have that choice or perspective on life. You know, they're in a very different situation. And I think if anything, COVID has also shown us how fortunate we are to be yeah. in this country. So if we can kind of shift our perspective each day to one that's more grateful, um, more thankful for what we have um, uh, rather than looking at what we don't have, you know, kind of shift that perspective each day to something more positive and we're going to have a, an overall more positive life and more positive experience and impact on others. And I encourage people to do your program because you give some really,
0: like, unique perspectives on when you're you're feeling quite depressed and some, some important cues, I think, of what to do during that time from... perspective of what you went through so i think yeah it would be you know people should really even the program you know as much as you might think it's just about leadership it's it's not it's about these things as well like your mental health and so i i remember distinctly one thing you said around there going oh okay that's a really that distinction and i'm purposely not telling you guys what it is Ha, so you have to go find out but lastly i really, I did your whole course because you have the word dutiful leadership written there, you know, it was like, what dutiful leadership. So can you just end by sharing why you're so passionate about dutiful leadership and purpose?
1: And then we'll just, yeah, look, I think, um, it's funny in Australia, the word duty actually has a very negative connotation to a lot of people. Whereas obviously from my background, um, it's actually the whole premises of my business. And, you know, dutiful is a word that I've come up to kind of drive where I head in life and what I do, that uh, um, I see duty as a privilege and as something that I I love doing. I love being of duty and of service to others. And so for me, duty is a a positive thing, but of of so many people that I talk to, you see this you know instinctive kind of prickled response from duty as like a bit of a resentment towards it. Um, and, and, And interestingly, particularly from women, women yeah. like we don't want any more duty we don't want to be a dutiful mother we don't want to be you know, yeah. um, it's, it's almost like there's this sort of attribute of obligation to it rather than you know I kind of shift that completely and see duty as something beautiful and as a privilege and and something that gives me a lot of purpose and drive in my life so um I kind of you know want to reclaim the word duty. yeah I
0: think it's great that you do it because it kind of ir- it yeah there's curiosity because it's
1: yeah, and I think particularly the leaders and, the, you know, that term that I use, the dutiful leadership. So for me, if I kind of define my, my leadership style, yes, it was very inclusive, very adaptive leadership style because I needed to be able to shift between different styles. And you can only do that quickly if you've earned the trust and respect of your people first. Um, but also, I, you know, that sort of servant leadership, that sort of um of being of service to my team that, you know, I kind of flip the organisational chart completely upside down where, as I see, the leader on the bottom is there to serve the people, the, the team that they're they're leading. Uh, and in the military, you know, officers will always eat last. We put our soldiers first to, to you know, in something as simple as, you know, as food, the soldiers yeah. eat first, not the officers. Um, and so all of those kind of attributes combined, I've come up with that term of dutiful leadership because I think, you know, it's that combination of, in co- of collaboration, inclusive partnership with people. I like to lead as like, a, you know, I see myself as a partner in what we're trying to achieve rather than sort of leading and directing. Um, and so all of that together is, is, you know, the term dutiful. And I think, I think we all owe it to ourselves. We have a duty to make sure we we are living our best life and actually aren't really living the life that we have, of what is our true purpose in life and exploring that, spending the time to kind of see what we are doing and where we want to head um, so that we're, we're living the best life we possibly can. Awesome. And I
0: I really want people to, even if you write this word down, dutiful leadership, just to let it seep in. But the word honor and service, like the word honor in particular, I really just sat with that word because I was thinking, oh, I never use that word. It never really comes up in my life. Um, and then the more I thought about it, when you even talked about living in Australia, I'm recently an Australian citizen. I, I'm Canadian and just, gratitude. I think honor brings gratitude as well. They kind of go together for me anyway. So I really encourage people to, to sit with these words and, and see, I believe it can fully shift our perspective Mm -hmm. when we, like what you just said, even how you chose to redefine that feeling of resentment about being alive to how can I make my life worthy of, you know, taking in air. And so I thought that was really cool how you you've done it in your own life. And now you're teaching it and showing us all how we can do it. So Bettina, thank you so much. I appreciate you just diving even deeper. has just been a real joy. I think, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's just a reason why we met and those volleyball stories just continue to blow my mind. Cause we didn't know any of that, did we? So that's no, very cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. thank you so much. I really appreciate you.
1: Oh, uh, thank you, Sarah. It's been a privilege. And, uh, for your listeners, I thought I'd offer if anyone um, is interested in my my book, I'm offering just for your listeners a 20 percent discount. Um, so they use a, the coupon code Crossfire 20. Okay. Go to my website. Um, I can personally sign those books for them. Uh, just leave me a note. You know who they'd like me to sign them to. Um, but yeah, that's, there's some more information there if they if they want that.
0: Okay. Should I put it in the cross? Should I put it in the, the notes, or should I just leave it here? Like so they only have to listen to hear it. What do you mean? <laughs> you can put it in the notes if you. Want. Okay. Want to you, Sarah, yeah, we'll you help your
1: podcast. You, uh, <laughs> you can. We'll help. help them. Yeah, we'll help them. It's all good. That's very generous of you. Very servant leadership, like. So, thank you, Matina. That's all right. You have a great day, Sarah. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks to your listeners.
0: We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So... Open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the Listen Now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on Write a Review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to... Put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.